If you all have have been with us in the last few weeks, you will know that we've been going through the Gospel of John. We picked up uh, this fall, beginning with John chapter 6, and this week is the conclusion to that chapter. And if you will look back or think back to the sermons on John chapter 6, you'll remember it started, started with Jesus Christ feeding miraculously from a few loaves and a few fish, feeding over 5,000 people. By that time, it, it got late in the day, so Jesus decides to send all the disciples back. He wants to go up to a mountain to pray. He sends his closest disciples to him, puts them in a boat, and sends them across the lake to the other side of the lake, actually into a storm. Jesus delivers those 12 from the storm. They get to the other side. The morning comes, and here come the people. They're hungry again. They want to be fed by Jesus. But this time, Jesus doesn't feed them physical bread. Instead, he talks about the bread come down from heaven. And then he gets into this unique discussion about how it is necessary for them Uh, to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. So for for those of you that that may have missed those sermons in the past few weeks, or maybe you just didn't hear what we were preaching about, maybe you were young, maybe you are young, maybe you're wondering, I I don't know what you're wondering, actually, But that's the good news of this morning. We're going to tie everything together. We're going to talk about why Jesus says the things that he does the day before and what it means for us this morning. It's the so what to the bread of life discussion in John chapter 6, bringing it to a conclusion here this morning. So, if you will, let's look at the passage. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. It's printed for you in your bulletins if you don't have your Bibles handy. Let me read this aloud to us, God's Word. John chapter 6, beginning of verse 60. When many of his disciples, meaning Jesus, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. 
He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your word become flesh, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that we would hear his words and that we would believe and that we would know that he has come from you to save us from our sins. Work in our hearts this morning. Bless us, guide us, direct us, teach us that we would walk out of this place this morning knowing that we were in your presence and in your presence would you change us. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Three things in this passage that I think we're going to spend some time on. The first thing that, that I want us to see is, I want us to look at Jesus. I want us to see in this passage what he's thinking, what's, what's in the back of his mind, what he's saying, what he's saying about the situation in the present, but also what he's saying about the future. I want us to, to, to get a clear picture of who Jesus is. After that, we're going to look at the responses to Jesus and what he says. It's pretty simple. Some follow Jesus, some don't. Then lastly, we're going to bring it, bring it all together. Not only this, this section of Scripture, but all of chapter 6. We're going to seek to understand why some people follow Jesus and some people turn back. And realize, it's pretty interesting. You don't know all the dynamics that go on up here when you're sitting out here during worship. And, and when Hal's not preaching, he's... He's much more active in the chair over here. And, and he, he paused during one of the song, songs that we were singing. He looked at me and he goes, you know, I was looking out over here. And he goes, look at who you're preaching at. And I, I looked up. His point was this. Whether you're a believer here this morning or an unbeliever, Everybody out here. See, I don't even have my glasses on, so I don't even know who exactly you are. But we can clearly say this. We're all sinners. We're all in need of the bread from heaven. And see, this, that's what this passage is all about. I mean, there's, there's some really confusing things that have gone on before. And, and I want you to walk away this morning, whether you were a believer whether you are an unbeliever, whether, whether you're struggling with sin or things are going really, really well today in your life, I want you to walk away and I want you to know who Jesus is and I want you to know why he says what he says. I want you to see him and I want you to meet him again. And when you walk out this door, know that, you want, that you're not alone. So we're going to look at Jesus Christ, who he is. We're going to look at the responses uh, to, to who Jesus is, what he says. And then lastly, we're going to seek to understand why. So let's look at Jesus. R realize, if you were to go back and you were to study this passage, you would realize that John is writing this book, the gospel according to John, in a particular way, for a particular reason, to a particular people. And John is specifically 
showing you through these narrative asides or these parenthetical remarks, showing you what's going on in Jesus' mind, what he's thinking. And John is doing that for a particular purpose. He wants the people that are reading his gospel way back 2,000 years ago, and he wants us, he wants things to be clear for us. He, he, he wants us to see the important ideas, and he wants us to understand something particular. And the first thing that he wants us to understand is that when you look at this passage, you see Jesus Christ, and he is in charge of the whole situation. He is a man in command. You know, I, I thought back and... Uh, Throughout my life, whether it was in the army or whether it was in business, you, you would always run into certain people. They could be men, they could be women, but, but you, you knew quickly that they were real leaders. And you knew they were a real leader because of, of, of the way they interacted with other people. In the midst of difficult situations, they, they wouldn't get flustered. They would remain calm. It's almost as if they knew what was going to happen, even though you were well aware that they, they, they didn't. They were there. They, they understood who they were. They understood their purpose. They had this depth about them. There was something that was interesting, uh, and it was uncanny. What was more interesting, though, was that while some people really liked being around those that showed this type of attitude and presence, there were always some that did not like it. There were always some that when they'd leave a meeting or they would talk amongst themselves in the cafeteria, there was something about that that would put them off. When you run into a real leader, okay, some want to be near but there are other people that would like to leave the room. See, John, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is presenting Jesus Christ in this way, only Jesus is that much better. He is the one in control. He is the Lord. He is not surprised by what's going on, even as he's speaking to his disciples. He's not even surprised about what's going to happen in the future. He, he's... He's a man who is in all control, has all authority, and all power. Look at verse 61. Jesus knows, look at, look at, Jesus knows in himself what the disciples were grumbling about. He knows who will not believe, verse 64, which also means he, he knows who will believe. Verse 64 again, he knows who's going to betray him in, in the last verses, 70 and 71. He knows that he will be betrayed. Evidently, John wants to remind us that Jesus is in total control of this situation. But it's not only what Jesus knows or what Jesus is thinking. It's in what he says. The first thing that Jesus says himself in this passage is, do you take offense at this? And it's not like he doesn't know. John's already told us he knows that they were grumbling. He knows that they were upset. He says, are you offended at this? And then he goes on and he says, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He says, are you offended at this? What if when you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? 
See, the people are upset, and we need to understand the context here. They wanted food. It's a new day. They got fed yesterday. They want some food today. And Jesus says, look, as important as physical food is, there's something that's more important. You need to be nourished spiritually. And not only that, Jesus says, I am that nourishment. So Jesus is saying, if what I said to you yesterday offends you, What's going to happen in the future? What about when I ascend up to where I was before? And realize, understand this. John here is not simply talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ after he's been raised from the dead in Acts chapter 1 where people look on and they see him raised to the sky. John's not simply talking about that. John, for John, the ascension includes Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross. See, for John, Jesus' glory is all about his dying on the cross for his people. Jesus is lifted up on a cross. What happens when you see the the Son of Man being lifted up on a cross for you? In his death, he is exalted. His humiliation is the way of glory. So so if you're offended at what I've just talked to you about, what's going to happen when I die for you? You see, realize this this conversation about eating flesh and drinking blood that that was preached to, to us by Hal last Sunday. There was nobody there confused about cannibalism. There was, I don't even know, I was thinking about this yesterday. Did they have vampires back in Jesus' day? I mean, I know they didn't have books and TV shows about vampires. They weren't worried about vampires. Jesus is trying to help his listeners understand that if they are going to live, if they're going to be nourished, then he's going to have to die. And it's the idea of substitution. And don't think the people listening to Jesus didn't understand this idea of substitution. They were very aware of the sacrificial system. They were very aware of this idea that if they wanted to be reconciled to God, that something had to die in their place. Jesus is talking to them and he's saying, if someone is to live, if you are going to live, I'm going to have to die. If you're going to live, then it comes through me and it comes by me. And, and, and this isn't, Paul says the same thing just in a, in a little more, uh, I don't know, more acceptable way maybe. Although when you think about it, it's really not that acceptable. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I, I, I no longer live in the body by myself, but the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. John, Jesus is preaching the good news to his disciples, to the people who are following him. Jesus is saying, if when I say that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, if that is offensive to me, what's going to happen when you learn that your king, the God become man, has to die a humiliating death in your place so that you can live? It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. And yet you know what this is. This is what we've been talking about since, since we started the worship service this morning. 
This is the heart of God for people like you and me. If Jesus Christ doesn't die in our place, we have no life. You might have plenty of bread this morning to feed your stomach, but if you haven't tasted it of Jesus, your soul is not alive. This is the hard saying. This is what is dividing people. And and, and here's the point here. And and this is something that we all need to consider. Jesus is making sure the people who are attracted to what he's doing, that they really understand what he's all about, and they're attracted to the right thing. They're attracted for the right reasons. You do realize this is the particular place in John's gospel where everything starts to go downhill for Jesus and the rest of his followers. Up till now, there are crowds all around Jesus, right? Go back to John chapter 2. What does Jesus do? Jesus turns water into wine. Who doesn't like that? Everybody's going to follow Jesus. It gets, he continues to do so many signs and so many miracles that there's a place before this that, that there's so many people coming after and wanting to be baptized by Jesus' disciples that John the Baptist's disciples are getting a little offended by it. They're kind of like disappointed. They're worried they're not going to have a place. The day before, crowds are flocking to him. But here in our passage, the tone changes. Not only do people start not following Jesus, but there's a growing hatred for Jesus, and it continues all the way to the cross. John and Jesus in this passage is helping us understand, clearing things up for us. He wants us to have our eyes wide open because Jesus clearly has his eyes wide open. Jesus knows what he's come to do. Jesus knows what it's going to take. And he wants to make sure that the people that are following understand what it is he's calling them to. We do need to know what we're getting into in the Christian life. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood is simply another way of saying, what do you think of me dying for you? Eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's saying, you're going to have to be so identified with me that unless you are nourished by me, you have no way of understanding what's going on. You do realize this is why our passage starts with, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? That's what the passage starts with, right? And let's, let's be fair. You ought to be, I hope you have a fun time after lunch talking to your children about the eating of flesh and the drinking of blood. Because it is a baffling conversation, isn't it? It's fair to say that that the disciples are a little bit bewildered because it's weird. But don't think that the people listening to Jesus didn't understand. Don't think they didn't understand what it was he was talking about. You realize the Greek word for hard, it doesn't refer to being hard to understand. You know what it refers to? It refers to being hard to accept. It's not easy to like. It's not tolerable. 
And let's, let's draw a general implication out of this. I, I do, and I talk to a lot of people, a, a lot of unbelievers. Christianity is hard to understand. It's complex. And we have to admit, the Trinity, it's kind of hard to explain, isn't it? The two natures of Jesus Christ, it's very hard to understand. But you know what? There's always going to be mystery with God, because otherwise God wouldn't be God. That's not why people don't accept Christianity. They don't accept Christianity because they don't like it. It doesn't fit with what they want. Let me give you an illustration of this. This is a true story. It happened a long time before I came here, so you don't know any of the people. But there was a friend of mine who came into some financial problems. There were real real big financial problems. He had overextended himself. He'd bought too big of a house, and he bought too many cars. Not just two, he bought several. He got laid off, he had to find another job. He was competent enough to find another job, but that job only paid half of what he was used to. He knew he was in a big financial trouble. So he goes to a financial planner, financial advisor. They developed a very specific plan to fix it, and it included some very hard things. He had to move from a 6,000-square-foot house to an 1,800-square-foot house. He had to sell several of his cars. He had to get rid of some other things. It was very difficult for him. It really was. No minimizing any of that. But it wasn't catastrophic, right? Six months later, I read in the paper that this man has filed bankruptcy. And then I find out that he is, his wife and his children have left. And he is living with his parents. I called him up. I said, what happened to the plan? You know what he said? He said, nothing. It was a good plan. I just didn't like it. I should have liked it, but I didn't. You know what he could have said? It was a hard saying, who can listen to it? See, Jesus is in control. He's in command. He knows who he is. He knows why he's come. And he wants us to understand that well. He wants wants people who are following him to understand what it is he's really doing. And it wasn't simply to provide physical bread, as important physical bread is. He came to provide something more important than that. Which leads to the second idea. The differing responses to Jesus. This is not hard. This is not complex. Many people leave, right? It's very clear in the passage. They understand, they don't understand everything, but they understand enough to know what Jesus is saying. But the bottom line is, they don't want bread from heaven, they want bread today. By the way, in in chapter 6, they wanted a, a king, but they wanted a king that was part of their political party, and if he wasn't in their political party, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. They had their own ideas about how religion worked and they were good with what they thought. Can I be very personal here? You know what it boils down to? It boils down to things like this. I'm going to do this in my own way. Nobody has a right to tell me how I ought to live. I am my own authority and I'm going to decide what it means to live well. I like the blessings of Jesus. I just don't like some of the things he's saying. Verse 64, these are the ones who do not believe. You know what it means not to believe? These are the ones who turned back and no longer walked with him. 
they were offended at the words of Jesus. And they understood enough to know what it is he was saying. F.F. Bruce, New Testament scholar, says, What they wanted, Jesus wouldn't give. What Jesus offered, they would not receive. That's many of them. There was a small group. Another response, verse 67, Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Or literally, he says, surely you guys don't want to go away too, do you? And remember, Jesus isn't asking the question for his sake. He's not wondering and worried about whether or not the 12 or the 11 are going to stay with him. He's asking the disciples, and this is very important. He's asking the disciples, not because he needs to know. The disciples need to verbalize their answer. They need to hear their answer. And it happens a lot in Scripture, doesn't it? God asking questions not for his own benefit, but for his people's benefit, right? As early as Genesis chapter 3 After Adam and Eve's sin, God goes and he finds Adam and Eve. And what's the question that he asks them? Where are you? He knows exactly where they are. He needs them to answer. Peter answers on behalf of himself. Peter answers on behalf of all the true followers of Jesus Christ. And here's his answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we know you are the Holy One of God. So much in that little confession. To whom shall we go? It's not simply, I can't think of any place else to go. It is, we know you're it, Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. They're they're not offensive words. They're melting our hearts. We have believed, and we know there's an idea of certainty here. You are the Holy One of God, the Holy One of God. The the one when we look at Jesus, He looks just like me, and yet He's so utterly different that, that I just can't take my eyes off of Him. In other words, this is what Peter's saying here. Even though we can't fully comprehend all it is that you are saying, even though we don't know all that we would like to know, even though it's not according to our expectations, what you've been saying, how you've been saying it, whatever it is you say you're going to have to do, we believe, we know, you are the Son of God, and we will follow you. We will be so closely identified with you, Jesus that people can say we're we're eating of you. You are the bread from heaven, the Son of God, come to die for his people. And Peter says, will you sustain us? Will you nourish us? You, You want to know what he's really saying? This is what he's saying. We don't know everything we'd like to know, but we know enough not to trust ourselves. So we're going to trust you. We know enough to know not to trust ourselves. When Peter says this uh, for himself and on behalf of the 11 disciples, on behalf of all those historically who have come to be identified with Jesus Christ, 
you do, we do need to remember this. It doesn't mean that you understand everything. It doesn't mean that you can clearly understand a God who works in different ways than you would expect. And, and it doesn't mean that, that you feel real comfortable with what tomorrow might bring. It doesn't mean you understand everything. It also doesn't mean that we are going to get it right for the rest of our lives. You do realize that Peter makes this confession and pretty quickly he messes up. And he continues to mess up. And, and the rest of the New Testament is just a, a, a long extended discourse about how God is working in spite of his people's mess ups. You know what, what Peter's saying here? It's not that we know everything we want to know. It's not that we're not going to continue to mess up. It's Jesus, we're never going to stop following you. We're never going to stop following you. We're going to realize that some days we're going to be walking down a path and, and all of a sudden you're not there and I see you far away on this other path and I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to, to run through those trees and run through those briars and run through those shrubs and I'm going to come back to you because you're always coming back to me. Jesus is the only one. He's sent from God. He has all authority. He has all power. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He also knows that there are some that are going to follow him and some that are not going to follow him. He, he knows that some are going to turn back and some are going to keep coming. And the last point is, why? Why is it that, that, that some follow and some don't? Why is it that even some of us who have made the decision to follow and we are very committed to following, why is it that sometimes we find ourselves not following? And this is really, this is where I was standing in my garage continuing yesterday afternoon, continuing to put together this passage, and this is where it really kind of just knocked me off my feet. Because it's easier to think, or it's easier than you think, to forget who Jesus is. It's, it's, it's easier than you think to, to not walk with Jesus. To go your own way. To think that maybe all that matters is, is, is the bread for today. Or it's easy to think that, oh, I love Jesus, I'm just going to do it my own way. Why do people respond differently to Jesus? Why do those of us who have responded positively to Jesus, why do we sometimes just find ourselves walking our own way? It's very clear. Verse 63 and 64. The Spirit gives life. The flesh is of no avail or the flesh is of no help. Doesn't mean the flesh is not good. It just means it's not going to help you here. The words, he says this, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then in verse 64, Jesus says, that's why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. Listen, let me, let me the big picture here. Jesus is not saying, not minimizing the importance of physical bread in all of chapter 6. Now, you did realize these, these people are probably truly hungry the next day. He's not minimizing the importance of, of physical bread. It's important. 
He's not minimizing in this passage here the importance of, of, of personal responsibility. Jesus and, and John, they're trying to get people to respond to himself in the right way. Jesus knows and John knows, the Holy Spirit knows, God knows that life here is important and what we do matter. But you know what he is saying? He is saying that if you rely on your own self, if you rely on your own ideas, if you try to do this on your own effort, you have no hope of coming to me. Absolutely none. You don't have any hope of understanding any of this. He is saying that this life doesn't matter if this life is all you have. He is saying if it doesn't start with God, then there is no hope. You can't do it on your own. God has to do it for you. And I do realize this is a problem for many of us. Many of you. But I'm not talking about an intellectual problem where that doesn't seem fair that it's all up to God. Right? That's what we like to say. That just doesn't seem fair. It's all up to God. This is not an intellectual problem. It's not an intellectual problem in this passage. This is a hard saying. It's not a hard saying because we don't understand what he's saying. It's a hard saying because we don't like it. This is a moral problem. Right? We have all, we're all like this for that matter. We want to look to ourselves to live our own lives. We want to be our own authority. We have an idea of the way things are supposed to work. And if it doesn't fit into our categories, we're going to go our own way. That's me. And that's you. And that's what Hal meant here when he said, you know, we're preaching to a bunch of sinners. It's me and you. It's pride. Pride always leads to unbelief, and we all struggle with pride. It's not that we misunderstand who Jesus is. It's not that we misunderstand what he says and what he's done for us. We simply don't really think it's that important. Tim Keller, you know, the the big guy in our denomination, he's always good for a good tweet every week. He tweeted this. He's good for more than that. I don't mean it like that just sounded... I really, I like him, but this is a good tweet. Accepting Jesus Christ requires humility because you're admitting that you can't save yourself by your own means or by your own ideas. I I guarantee you, if you were to stop for a moment and think about your life and where you might be going your own way without Jesus, it wouldn't take you very long to... Identify several areas where you need to turn back. You have to give up on yourself. You have to surrender to God. And that's what Peter's talking about here. This is why people turn back and no longer walk with Jesus Christ. It's not because they don't have faith. It's because they place the faith that they have in the wrong thing. And it's usually themselves. On the other hand, we do have Peter, and he's speaking on on behalf of those who who know they can't do it. He says, we believe, we know, you are the Holy One of God. To whom else will we go? He knows enough not to trust himself. wasn't saying that he comprehended all that Jesus Christ had taught. In fact, you do realize Peter, at this point in his life, he knows less then than we know now. Much clearer for us now than for Peter back then. 
He was saying, Jesus, it is enough to know that you are the author of our salvation and we will submit to you. Let me just tie all this together here. You do realize the day before Jesus sent his closest friends, his disciples, out into a boat, into a storm, and he didn't have to. You realize they, they see Jesus stopping the storm, and they're amazed by it. They never get an explanation of why they had to go through the storm. All they knew is that they were delivered. All they knew that God all they knew was that God had come to their rescue in the person of Jesus Christ. And they knew that Jesus Christ claimed to be the life of God, come down from heaven, and that was enough. No one can live this life or face eternity without submitting to Him. Every day we need to ask ourselves the the philosophy of ministry at this church. Am I moving closer to Christ or am I moving away? And if you don't see Jesus Christ a little more clearly today, you're probably going in the wrong direction and we need to turn around. Let me conclude with with this. D.A. Carson, who wrote a commentary uh, among many others on John he says, you know, when Jesus asked the question, what if, what if when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, the condition is very clear. The conclusion is not. The condition is, are you going to accept Jesus Christ for who he says he is and what he does for you? That's the condition. The conclusion is left open. He goes on and he says... In other words, Jesus dying for you, seeing him for who he is and what he does, it will either make you more offended or it will remove the offense. How men and women respond to the supreme scandal of God dying on their behalf, that determines their destiny. And and I want to add this, it not only determines your destiny, it impacts how you live today. So where are you now? If you're an unbeliever, John tells us, he wrote this book so that you would see Jesus and you would believe. But he wrote it to believers, right? He says, I wrote this book so that you would see Jesus and you would believe. And you know what it means to believe? It means to walk with Him. Do you see Jesus Christ for who He is, for for what He's done in complete control, even giving up His life for you? Do do you love, and and we need to ask, do you love hearing about it? Does it melt your heart? Or do you just say, I'll go my own way? Because that's what this text boils down to. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father, it's the Spirit who gives life. 
Our flesh is of no help. The words that you have spoken to us this morning, they are spirit and life. Would we believe? Would we know that you have come to save us from our sins? Would we be reminded of that this day? And would we continue each and every day to just walk with you? To move heaven and earth just simply to walk closer to you? Would you do that? Would we trust you? Would we not trust ourselves, but would we look to you? We ask your blessings. Blessing on this sermon. Blessings on this table that we're about to to come to, to remember. Empower us, work in us. Sustain us and nourish us. In Jesus' name. Amen.